right, there we go. Good morning, everybody. Let's grab our seats. I think if, if, I, uh, if I didn't even come up here, you guys would talk for the whole 45 minutes and then leave and just be like, oh, I guess it's lunchtime and it's time to go, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing uh, to do that, and especially on, on Resurrection Sunday where we get to celebrate the fact that our Savior is alive, and uh, to do that with you guys is a blessing to me and a joy to open up God's Word together. Uh, so let's do that. And I want you to turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. As you're turning there, I just want to mention this to you. Uh, Easter has turned into a lot of different things. Uh, in fact, over the years, Easter has turned into a time for uh, Easter bunnies, Easter baskets, Easter hats, Easter songs. Uh, maybe your family likes peeps. Uh, those are also on the list. It used to be jelly beans. Maybe we've upgraded to peeps. I don't know. Uh, maybe that was a downgrade. It used to be about, uh, or, or I should say Easter has turned into times for even to be together as a church uh, to sing our favorite songs together. But I want to remind you of this. The very first Resurrection Sunday was about one thing and only one thing. It was about an empty tomb. There wasn't anything else in fact, there was more mourning than there was celebration happening. There was more fear than there was excitement on that day. But we want to get back to that moment right now where everything on Sunday morning is about the empty tomb. Everything else is just an add-on. Everything else is just whatever you want it to be, not bad things necessarily. But the focus on Resurrection Sunday is the same focus that it was the very first time that we even had a Resurrection Sunday, an empty tomb. And so we're going to do that by looking at uh, Matthew chapter 27. We're going to look at uh, 57-ish down through chapter 28. But to understand that section of Scripture, we first have to go back two days prior to Sunday morning. Two days prior to Sunday morning was Friday night. And if you were here for our Good Friday service, Pastor Shay did an excellent job of, of taking us to that understanding of Friday night, which was about the ransom price that was paid on our behalf so that we can have eternal life. There is no resurrection Sunday if there is no death on Friday night. Easter is two sides of a coin. The one side says uh, death of Jesus Christ and the other side says resurrection of Jesus Christ. And on Friday night, what happened was very important, very, very important to understand that on that Friday night when Jesus hung there on the tree, he took the full wrath of God upon himself. All the sins that we had ever committed in our life, the wrath of God should be poured out on us instead of pouring it out on us for the sins and crimes that we committed against God. He poured all of them on his son, Jesus Christ, and he paid the ultimate penalty for our sin, his death. And it's a wonderful and beautiful thing, and, and we celebrate that on Friday night, but it is only wonderful and beautiful if he rises on Sunday morning. If he does not come out of the grave, then what? He's just a dead man. He's still in the tomb. And so everything in Christianity, everything that we believe hinges on what happens three days after he dies on the cross. Christ remains dead, then none of what I just said about the meaning of the cross is true. 
Christ has to rise from the dead. He has to validate his claims. He has to validate that he is the Messiah. He has to confirm that. All the works and all the words of Jesus are validated because he rose from the grave. If not, our faith is in vain and Christianity is a fraud. One person said like this, he said this, I quote this, says the Christian church rests on the resurrection of its founder. If Christ was raised from the dead, then all his other miracles are sure and our faith is secure. If he is not raised, Jesus died in vain and our faith is in vain. It was only his resurrection that made his death available for our atonement, justification, and salvation. Without the resurrection, his death would be the grave of our hopes. We would still be unredeemed and under the power of our, of our own sins. The good news message of salvation with a dead Savior is a contradiction. The resurrection of Christ is therefore emphatically a test question upon which depends the truth or falsehood of the Christian religion. It is either the greatest miracle or the greatest delusion which history records. That's exactly what Jonah read to us, and maybe you caught that this morning when we, when we read it in 1 Corinthians 15, I highlight verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. This is why, church, we make such a big deal about this morning. This is why, church, we celebrate every Sunday morning together to worship what? A risen Savior. Our faith is dependent on Jesus coming out of the grave. Well, you're in Matthew 27. There's a story here about not just the resurrection of Jesus in Matthew 27 and in, verse, and in, and in chapter 28, but in Matthew 27, the end of Matthew 27, this highlights, listen to this, the desire of the Jews to stop Christ from coming out of the grave. That was their desire. The chief priests and the Pharisees didn't want Christ to come out of the grave. And this story right here is going to show us the futility of their efforts. Really, it was a, an impossible mission to begin with, yet they wanted Christ in the grave. They even ended it because they couldn't keep him in the grave with a cover-up story, a conspiracy, a, a 2020 story, if you will, to, to come up with to say, hey, that really isn't Jesus. His body was just stolen by the disciples. All of that's right here in this passage. I, let me just read it for you. It's, it's just compelling just reading it. And then we'll go back and explain it. Look at, look at verse, um, let's just start in 57. When it was evening, the then, then came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who, was, who, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered uh, it to be taken down. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut out of the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went, uh, and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, this would be Saturday now, that is the day after preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before, before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember, we remember, oh, how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise, therefore order the tomb to be made, be made secure until the third day, lest... 
the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people. He's going to tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone, setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and he came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow, and for fear of him, and the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and uh, took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went to the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while they were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. If you look back in verse 62, it tells us who it is that were conspiring against Jesus. The chief priests and the Pharisees. These were basically the religious elite during the time. They were the ones who who essentially ran the the country underneath the Roman uh, authority. And they had a concern, a, a, a grave concern, and the concern is, is therefore, as you can see it in, in uh, 64, it says, he has risen from the dead, and then it says this, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. What was the problem here that the chief priests and the Pharisees had with Jesus and an empty tomb? It was this, they knew and, and they believed that, uh, that there was a fraud that was taking place. And the first fraud was this, was when Jesus announced that he was the savior of the world, when Jesus announced that he was the son of God, when Jesus rode on the donkey a week earlier into Jerusalem, claiming to be the king of kings. The chief priests and the Pharisees did not like that. They haven't liked Jesus for a long time. But they certainly didn't like the fact that he was claiming to be the Messiah. He was claiming to be God. They said that's the first fraud, but, but the second fraud would be this. The second fraud would be that Jesus actually rises from the dead and proves all the things that he says he is. That would be worse. That's far worse. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to prove it. It's one thing to proclaim it. It's another, it's another thing to, to confirm it. And so they're very, very concerned right now. They don't want Jesus alive. They're very happy that he's dead. They never wanted Jesus to come out of that tomb. Why why is that? What was it that the chief priests and the Pharisees 
What, what is it that they didn't like about Jesus? Well, they didn't like the fact that Jesus came in and he totally upended the entire Jewish religion. He flipped it on its head. It was a works-based religion. Jesus said that, that you can only come to the Father through him by faith. He exposed their hearts. He exposed the fact that the Pharisees on the outside looked very, very moral. They were, they were in fact, the, the elite when it came to morality. But Jesus said, inwardly, your heart is far from God. In fact, he even called them this, ironically, I suppose, whitewashed tombs. This is, this is what it says in Matthew 23, 27, 28. He says this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness, uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What was Jesus doing? He was exposing the fact that outwardly they were trying to say, hey, I'm close with God. Look at what I'm doing. I'm earning salvation. People love me because on the outward, I look as though I'm righteous. And Jesus comes in and says, you are a whitewashed tomb. On the outside, you look righteous, but on the inside, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. No wonder they wanted him killed. Jesus ripped their religious veneer off. He exposed their religion for what it really was, a man-centered, works-based religion that only dealt with the outside but couldn't deal with the inside. And the chief priests and the Pharisees wanted Jesus dead. You can track this all through the Gospel of John. In John 5.18, they were seeking to kill him. In John 7.30 and John 7.44, they wanted him arrested. In John 8.59, they picked up stones and they threw it at him. In John 10.31, again, they picked up stones and threw it at him. This was an, an attack on Jesus to get him dead. And now that he's dead, they want to keep him that way. They don't want him out. He's in the tomb. Let's keep him in the tomb. He's exposing our hearts. He's calling us to repentance. He's challenging our man-centered beliefs. They don't want him claiming to be God. They don't want him claiming to be the king of kings. They don't want him in his life. We've got him dead. Let's keep him dead. Let's keep him in the tomb. Let's do everything we can to keep him in the tomb. And you know, that sounds a lot like people today. Many people maybe even you this morning, you don't want Jesus alive. You want him dead. You don't want God in your life telling you what to do. You don't want God in your life exposing an outward righteousness, but an inward distance from God. You don't want Jesus confronting your sin. You don't want a king of kings and a lord of lords in your life because you're the king of kings and lord of lords of your life. And you believe that having Jesus in your life would take away your freedom. 
believe that having Jesus in your life will take away and rob you of the satisfaction that this world has to offer. The satisfaction in your life that you so desperately crave, but you can't find it. You believe life is better without Jesus. Just like the chief priests and the Pharisees. This is better. This is best case scenario. For, for all day Saturday, he's in the grave. Look, we get to do whatever we want. What are we going to do? We're going to make sure he stays there. We're trying to satisfy ourselves with things that this world has to offer, and yet we live in one of the most affluent parts of the country and one of the most prosperous areas in the nation, and look around. People aren't happy. On the outside, we're able to collect things and have things and make ourselves look as though we're happy and joyful and wonderful, but the reality is this, is there's a lot of miserable people, miserable people out there. There's a lot of people who are not satisfied in life and they're broken. Many people who are living double lives, they have a veneer of goodness on the outside, but the inside they're broken and devastated and they're just grinding through life, grinding through their marriages. And they're trying to do it, looking around the world to be satisfied. They're trying to do it without Jesus. And maybe that's you. You're looking around saying, I can't find satisfaction. It's supposed to be here. The world's telling me it's supposed to be here. Where is it? And I need to tell you this. This world wasn't designed for your satisfaction. This world wasn't designed for you to look around and say, what can, what can fill the void in my life? Maybe it's, maybe it's a better job and I'll pursue that. Maybe it's a, the promotion. Maybe it's the raise. Maybe, maybe it's a, an intimate relationship with somebody. Uh, maybe it's, it's, a, it's a happy family and you just keep going and going and going after all these things and you're just shoving Jesus back in the tomb. Thinking life's going to be better. If Jesus would just stay there. And the reality is this. If that's you this morning, the reality is this. Is that your desire to have Jesus dead is actually killing you. The only hope that we have for satisfaction in this life, the only hope that we have for eternal life is if Jesus comes out of that grave. Otherwise, we are still dead in our trespasses and sin. And the Jews wanted that. They wanted him there. They didn't want him to come out. They want him there forever. They're disrupting their plan. But yet God has a plan of salvation that, that cannot be stopped. But what they do is, look what it says. It's a day of preparation. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they, they gather before Pilate, and they say this, Sir, look at verse 63. Sir, we remember how that imposter said. They couldn't even say Jesus. That imposter, that, that liar. We know how that liar said while, while, what? while he was still alive. What does that mean? He's dead. While he was still alive, he's dead. What did he say? After three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be to make sure uh, to, to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away. 
What's on their mind? What's on the mind and on their conscience is this. Jesus might be right. He, he might actually do what he said. This is burning in their conscience. That, that, that he might actually be the one, the Messiah. He might actually come out of that grave. Jesus said it a number of times. We even talked about it on, on Friday night. Shay even, even read, read the verse talking about Jesus preparing his disciples for the fact that he would, he would be arrested in Mark 9.31, that, that he would be delivered in the hands of men, that, that, that they would kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. That They would have gotten wind of this. They would have known this. They would have heard of this. And they would have thought, maybe this might actually happen. This would be a horrible fraud if it does. And they go back to Pilate, and they say, hey, remember when Jesus said that he'd be delivered into the hands of men? Pilate, that happened. We arrested him. Remember the guy? Judas. We had him kiss the guy on the cheek, 30 pieces of silver. We, we did what he said. Not only was he delivered, Jesus would then say this, that they're going to kill me. Pilate, we killed him. We crucified him. In a Roman-style execution, we nailed him to a cross. He is crucified. He is dead. Everything he said is about to happen. Oh, and guess what? He said he's going to rise again. Pilate, we cannot let this happen. We cannot let this happen. This is not going to happen. Because what if he's right? What if he actually does? And we got to deal with a guy who's risen from the grave, and that's way worse than dealing with him while he's dead. It's all happening just like he said. By the way, the Pharisees did believe in a resurrection. Sadducees, not so much, but the Pharisees did. Except their thought was, they probably won't raise from the dead. Maybe the disciples will take his body and come up with some story. Maybe the body will be stolen. They'll come at night. It's Saturday. Maybe they'll come, steal the body, make up a story about what actually happened. We can't let them steal the body. We need them in the grave. It's better for everyone. It's better for everyone. So look what it says. It says there are three different times to secure the tomb. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure. What were they trying to do? Secure the tomb. Make it as secure as they possibly can. Three different times. It's just mentioned right there. It's very clear what it is that they are trying to do. Let me just show you the two ways that they're trying to secure the tomb. It says it, it, says it for us. But it's worthy of, of noting here in verse 66. So they went and made the tomb secure by what? By sealing the stone. Now, we already read this, that uh, Joseph uh, took the body and put it in a, a brand new tomb of, of his own. He put it there, and it says there very clearly in verse 60 that uh, had a had a had a cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb. Uh, would have rolled right in front of the tomb. Gravity certainly would have been helpful uh, for that to happen and only for it to happen. The size of the stone, different, different people have guesstimations on, on the size and the, the weight of the stone. Some, 
historians say something around 1.5 to 2 tons. So you're like, I have no idea what that means. Uh, think of, a, um, think of a, a baby humpback whale. Or uh, for those of you who are a little bit older, think of a Volkswagen Beetle. Yeah, some of you guys are like, okay, I got it now. A walrus. This would have been a black rhino. This would have been the weight of this stone, meaning what? The, the impossibility of, of, of this thing potentially to be moved again, especially by a few men. It was set into place, and then not only that, was it set into place, but it was secured by, by the sealing of the stone, and this was a signet seal of Pilate. It would be Pilate's personal signet seal that he would put on the stone, most likely something like, like a rope that's tied to the, uh, around the front of it and then, and then sealed on the side so that if anybody tampered with it, they would have broke the rope. And if they, they broke the, the rope or the, the string that, that would have been tied, tied and sealed around it, then they would have to deal with Pilate personally. And this was a, a, a crime that would have been punishable by death. You can't tamper with this tomb because Pilate's, or Pilate's own signet ring is on it. It's been stamped by him. You tamper with this, you, you have to mess with, with Pilate. And so they secured it with this, thinking, hey, this will keep people off. This will keep robbers away. They, they'll look at the seal and they go, oh, it's stamped by Pilate. I better not touch this. Secondly, they did this. There's not only the sealing on it, but there's also a, the setting of a guard. In fact, this is what they said. Uh, Pilate said to them in verse 65, you have a guard of soldiers. You, you, you have a guard there. Go, go stick them around the tomb. Place extra guards there to protect, protect the tomb from, it, from any robbers. Now, again, there's guesstimations on the size of, of, of what this guard would mean. It's most likely the temple guard uh, that was there guarding the, guarding the temple. This, this guard could have been anywhere, some say four, some say 12, some say up to 60 men who would go and, and guard this, this tomb. This security would have been uh, 24-hour surveillance around the clock watching the tomb. These men were probably almost surely overtrained and overqualified for such a task as protecting a dead body. I mean, just imagine the assignment. Hey, guys, come here. Come here. We got an assignment. It's handed down straight from Pilate. I'm going to need, I'm going to need some men to guard the tomb. How many are you thinking? 60? Really? 60? The guy's dead, right? Yep, he's dead. Confirmed? Yep, we stabbed him in the side. He's dead. What's the deal? We, we just got to make sure that he stays there, all right? So we need all of you there around the clock. Just, just making sure nobody comes and steals the body. Can, can we do that? Sure, I, I guess. You're the boss. We'll, we'll, we'll be there. They, steal, they seal it, and now they guard it. But Sunday morning comes. Verse, chapter 28, verse 1. First day of the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day. Of the week, the sun is rising. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. 
For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it, almost like a posture of victory. You think this is going to stop Jesus? No. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow and for fear of him, the guards trembled. Do you think those guards are going to stop Jesus from coming out of the tomb? No, they trembled and became like dead men. They just dropped flat. No match for God. No match for the plan of God. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. This was the plan of Jesus, the plan of God for Jesus. He would raise him from the dead. But that wouldn't stop the Jews. You got Jesus now walking around saying, Walking around the streets, greeting people. He has come alive. He is alive. Look at verse 11. Jesus is out of the grave. The tomb is open. There's guards lying all around it. The signet seal has been broken. So they go and they, they tell this. The guard went into the city and told the chief priests that all had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel... So they get together. You have all of them together. Look who they assemble. They got the elders in there. They're they're all taking counsel. What do we do? What is the plan? What now? The grave has been opened. Jesus is out of the grave. They say, aha, let's pay somebody else off. It worked with Judas. Would it work again? Well, yes, it'll work again. This time with the soldiers. We'll just give money to the soldiers, and this is what we'll tell them. Verse 13. The disciples came by night and stole away while we were asleep. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So this is a story, guys. Hey, okay, this has happened. Here's the story. This is what you're going to say. If somebody asks what happened to the body, you just need to say the disciples took and stole it while we were sleeping. Yeah, but we're sleeping. How do we know? It doesn't matter. Just tell them you were sleeping and they took the body. That's the plan? You elders got together and said that? Here's some money. Okay, whatever you want. Yeah, I'll say whatever you want. Why is it the disciples would steal a dead body anyway? To the disciples, you remember what happened to the disciples? The disciples, when Jesus went to the cross, what did the disciples do? Poof, scattered. Scattered. They ran. They were skeptical. They weren't getting together to figure out how to roll a big stone away and and steal a body. What's the body to them anyway? It's a corpse. It's dead. According to this story, why would the disciples give their life to that? Why would the disciples just steal a body and then live and make up this story for all time and then go get murdered for it, persecuted for it, get, get, get sent to an, an island, exiled on an island? Why would they do that all for a stolen body? Making up a resurrection? 
The only explanation is that the tomb is empty because Jesus rose from the grave. The only explanation is this, is that God raised him from the dead. That the stone was rolled away. That Jesus walked out of the tomb and he validated all the claims that he said about himself. He confirmed everything he did by the fact that he was raised to life by God. All the securing, all this conspiracy that was going on, all these attempts to try to keep Jesus in the grave. Listen, it only confirmed what actually happened. God's plan is unstoppable. And this impossible mission and lie only proves the resurrection to be true. Legan Duncan says it like this. In his overwhelming providence here, God ordered things so that the death and burial of Jesus were placed beyond all doubt. These Gentiles and Jews, government officials, religious leaders were in fact conspiring to make sure that no fake resurrection could be claimed. That was their goal. But they were being used by God to confirm Jesus' resurrection. J.C. Ryle says this, They little thought what they were doing. They little thought that unwittingly they were providing the most complete evidence of the truth of Christ's coming resurrection. They were actually making it impossible to prove that any deception or imposition had occurred. Their seal, their guard, their precautions were all to become witnesses. In just a few hours that, that Christ has risen, their own devices became instruments to show forth God's glory. It was a failed mission from the start because God's plan of salvation is unstoppable. He will use feeble attempts to discredit his son as means to validate his providence and sovereignty. Nothing was going to stop Jesus from rising from the dead. No seal, no security, not even Satan himself could stop Christ from victory over death. And when Jesus rose from the grave, sin was conquered, death defeated, and victory sealed. Because Christ lives, we too shall live. John 14, 19 says this, yet a little while... And the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. This is the power and victory of the resurrection. We serve a risen Christ, a risen God. Unlike Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, Muhammad Gandhi, the 300 million dead gods of the Hindu religion, or the 266 Roman Catholic popes over the years, all other gods and saviors are dead. Only Jesus Christ is alive. And not only did he claim to be the Messiah, he proved to be the Messiah. And this would be the message then the disciples would take. I want you to see one passage here. You do have to turn your Bible for this one. Turn to Acts.
The message then of the disciples was this in Acts chapter 2. This is Pentecost. Just weeks after Jesus would rise from the grave. And then we know in Acts chapter 1 the story of the ascension of our Lord into heaven. In Acts chapter 2, Peter would, would stand up and deliver a message to them. Now listen, with this in mind, listen to the message that Peter would give. Look at chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And he illustrates this now with David. He says, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is still with us to this day. What is he saying? David's still in the grave. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that, God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, underline it, God raised up. And that, and of all that, we are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received the Father of the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now here it is, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and Peter uh, and said to Peter and the rest of the, the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? All right, church, here's the response. Here's what you do with what you now know. Peter said to him, repent, repent. Repent. What do we do with the knowledge of and the understanding that Christ has risen from the grave and he's come out of the tomb? What do we do? Peter made it clear. You must repent of your sin. You must turn from your sin and embrace Jesus Christ as the risen King of kings and Lord of lords of your life. You must acknowledge your need of a Savior. You must confess that you are unable to save yourself and that it is because of your sin that you are separated from God. 
And you must go before Jesus Christ and beg and plead for mercy and say to him, forgive me. I believe. That was the message of Peter, and that's been the message of of all the apostles and the disciples since then, and it still remains the message today. We repent and believe because the tomb is empty and we have hope. For those of you who do believe and stand forgiven at the cross, you look back at the tomb and it's there where you find hope. We sang the song, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. If that is how you live the rest of your life, you're off to a great start. Waking up tomorrow and say, you know what? Christ rose from the grave. The tomb is empty. And because he lives, I can face whatever comes today. Because he lives, all fears are gone. Just because Christ rose from the grave and you're living in fear today, look back to the tomb. Because I know he holds the future. Life is worth the living just because he lives. This is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us. Meaning and purpose in life. This is why we celebrate the way that we do. The tomb is empty. Christ is risen. And we have the hope of eternal life. And because he lives, we too shall live with him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we do come before you, not talking now to someone who is dead, but now speaking to one who is very much alive and reigning in heaven. Thank you for the hope that we have in the resurrected Jesus Christ. Lord, would you please forgive us for wanting to keep you in the tomb, for wanting to push you out of our lives, wanting to think that there's something else better than, than you to satisfy our hearts. When you came to this earth to die on the cross for our sins, to take the full weight and wrath of God, so that we could have forgiveness and be redeemed back to God in a relationship with him. And in you, we have full satisfaction. What joy there is to be a child of God. And we celebrate this morning the fact that because you live and you conquer death, we too shall live with you. And I pray this morning we'd be encouraged by that. I pray as the, the days move on, we would look back to the empty tomb and be reminded that we serve a living King, we serve a living Lord, we serve a living Messiah, and we can trust Him with all that is going on in our lives, all that takes place until one day, 
you return and come back and take us all to glory. We look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.